Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The 805 Conversations podcast is produced every other week, and please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming shows. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and & Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and continued encouragement. And thanks to my podcasting partner and co-host, Patrick from Pullstring Press, for this great studio. Hey, Patrick. <laughs> Patrick from Pullstring Press. There you go. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm Good. well. I, hey, I, Patrick, I'd like you to meet Glenn Wharton. Glenn, how are you? I'm just fine. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And, and you're on your way to where it's cold. I'm on my way to New York. I catch a plane right after this interview. Yeah, nice. So you are, I, I don't understand the title, so I want to start there. <laughs> it says you're the clinical associate professor at Museum Studies, New York University. I understand every word except clinical. It is a mouthful. Uh, clinical is just a type of professorship at the university. What, like what? I, well, this it, is new for me. It was developed. Um, I think in medical school, um, but for practitioners, for people who are actually out there in the world doing things as oh. well as researching and writing and teaching about them. And so tell our listener what, what you spend your days doing. Well, my life has changed quite a bit over the years. Um, I have been a practitioner, and in a sense, I still am. The field is art conservation. Okay. So this field um, is composed of people who worry about the future of our cultural heritage. Mm. So objects, art objects, archaeological objects, archaeological sites, architecture, it's a very broad field, but we are the restorers, we're the preservers of these materials and, and even culture, cultural um, attributes. When did you first notice that you had an affinity for this? Well, it was when I was at UCSB. You're um, a gaucho. I'm a gaucho. Really? Way back. This was wow. in the mid-1970s. Um, I was taking art history classes, loving it, but I didn't really like just studying it. I wanted to work with art in some way, and I didn't know about this field. Uh, and as it happened, I was spending time up at Mount Calvary, uh, retreat house, an Episcopal retreat house in the mountains that right, recently sure. burned down. Yeah. And there was a monk there who painted Russian icons. And he asked me if I wanted to help him. And I said, sure. So he started uh, showing me all of the medieval uh, traditions of um, mixing egg tempera and, um, and um, preparing the panels. And so I started doing this. Uh, someone gave the church a whole collection of Russian icons, mm, mm. and he asked me if I wanted to help restore them. Oh. That's when I fell in love. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah. So I went up there on the weekends, and we would clean them and restore them. And then I began to wonder, is there a field in this? Could, pe could <laughs> uh, actually, could people right. actually do this for a living? Right. And indeed, there is. People work in museums um, and out on cultural sites as well. But um, So I started volunteering at the Getty Museum. Oh. In the antiquities conservation. So you, this yeah. is in your 20s? I was, uh, yes, I was in my 20s during my last uh, undergraduate years. Was it, And that was on uh, 
uh, uh, Highway One on the coast, right? Oh yeah, this was before this was before the Getty even came into its fortune. So oh. they were hoping Mr. Getty had died, and right. they were all hoping that the money would go towards them. And of course, it did. But back then, um, it was a very small museum on in Malibu on the right. coast. Right. Right. His Greek and Roman antiquities. How uh, one of the things I've always I've fascinated with this topic. How, what is it about the slow pace of discovery that is um, appealing to you? Well, I guess, you know, we, we think about doctors working on patients. Um, we are doctors of art in, to, huh. a, to an extent, um, where we, and our patients are the art objects. Okay. Um, I love that process of discovery. And it's a, it's a material science. So we were trained in, when oh, I did go off to oh. graduate school, I was trained in um, chemistry, science, but, but also even how light interacts with different materials, sure, fading sure. of dyes. And so we yeah. do technical analysis to figure out how the object was made, what it's composed of, how it's deteriorated, but then to figure out how to maybe clean it, repair it, slow these deterioration processes down. And I think that's what I love is just working... So there's the science. This it, it, it sounds like a true blend of the art and sciences. It's on that border, and that's mm. that's what gets me going. Because these are not just dead artifacts. These are objects that were made maybe for cultural ritual purposes, or maybe just to be beautiful, made by artists. So it's not just cleaning them. We have to figure out how far should we go. What do we think the artist would want the public to experience with this mm. object? Should we repair it all the way, or should we allow the public to see it as a deteriorated thing? Maybe, um, you know, like a, a general's uniform. Say the general was shot and killed, and there's blood on the uniform. Do we remove that blood mm. and mm. bring it back to its original? What's, what's the answer? The answer is that it's contingent, that it all depends on, uh, and this is where the curator comes in. So we work closely with curators who right. would say, no, I want to exhibit this thing as a historical object. We want to leave that. So blood. it's in context. Or Jackie Kennedy's dress. I mean, I hate oh, to bring that up, but. Yeah, but sure. It's at the Smithsonian, and they would never remove the blood. That's right. part of what that object is at this point. But what, but what about but so that would seem to then fly in the face of all restoration to say like if a, if a, if a, a conquering civilization comes in and knocks down your bronze statues and removes all their heads, do you put the heads back or do you acknowledge that moment of conquer? Oh, this is why I got so interested. <laughs> yeah, in sure. That yeah, I decided right. to step out of prof pr practice and ah. become a professor so I could research oh. these very questions. Because, um, yes, I love the material, but that's just the starting point. Right. Then you, you get into all these questions about, yes, do we resurrect past monuments? Do we put the heads back on? Or maybe we exhibit them with the heads next to them um, mm. as a testimony to a political act rather than just, you know, um, honoring the hero. So you're also saying there's lots of there's lots of outcomes that don't look like what are it's not a binary outcome. There's not always like oh well restore or don't restore. There's exactly. variety. Yeah, there's always multiple choices, and the values that we bring to it, our own considerations, our own understanding of either the, the, the history of the object or 
maybe what the artist was trying to do, all come into play. And so it should be a collaboration in, in the decision-making decision part. And we may do the technical analysis. I can say, yes, it's bronze. It's got this kind of corrosion. It's probably been, you know, in a marine environment from a shipwreck, and so it's got mm. salts mm. infused in it. So I can, I can bring all the material understanding, and then the curator says, well, let's remove that corrosion, or no, we want to leave the corrosion there so that people can see that it is an archaeological object from a shipwreck. Well, what about, what about, so, so how, f how far though, do you guys uh, develop an ethical line that set, or look, do you look for that ethical line of saying, well, what if you just pull a new plaster cast and then recast a bronze from something like that without any of the pitting, without any of the imperfections from it being undersea so that we can understand what it looked like originally by the original artist's intention? Is that too far? Uh, no, we call that replication. So uh -huh. I think there, there's good reason sometimes to make replicas and we could maybe exhibit the replica alongside the original so mm. the public can see, oh, this is the state it's in now. Mm -hmm. And this maybe is what it looked like originally. Mm. This comes into play with contemporary art with, um, or modern art with, for instance, early plastics. Mm -hmm. The Russian constructivists uh, were a group of sculptors in the early 20th century who, and the futurists, um, were experimenting with new synthetic polymers, new plastics. And the excitement was that you could bend them and contort them and do things to them that you couldn't do with glass. Mm -hmm. And so it was a celebration of modernity and, and technology to say, isn't this fantastic? Now they're all yellowed, <laughs> cracked, <laughs> sure. distorted. So do we, you know, it, it, the message is not there anymore. I mean, it's, it's not even there in our culture. We don't celebrate plastics the way they were <laughs> right. then. So how do we tell that story? And maybe a replica in maybe plexiglass sitting alongside the original might, you know, could be a way to help the public understand. <laughs> you, you, brought it, you brought in an art historian. I'm, I'm clearly going to have <laughs> an abundance of questions here. Patrick uh, teaches art. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So okay. that's, um, so this was a sleeper guest. Yeah, nicely done. Yes. Yeah. One of the, th we were talking earlier about, um, and I loved your point of view, that the uh, the Greek statues are not white <laughs> originally. They were painted. Yet if we were to see one painted, that would seem odd to us now because we've only ever seen them white. And then I told him about the work you did on the Kamehameha statue. Why don't you tell us about that? Tell that story. Oh, usually I can't tell it in less than 45 minutes, but I'll try to give a, a <laughs> Think of it as a really short TED Talk. <laughs> okay. The elevator speech. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the time, I was a, a, in private practice based here in Santa Barbara, working for museums, mainly around the western states, and I would go to Hawaii every summer um, and do surveys of outdoor sculptures and treat a couple of sculptures that I had surveyed before. And in 1996, they asked me to go look at the King Kamehameha sculpture, which is on the big island of Hawaii. The only brief I had was that it had paint on it, and I should figure out how to get the paint off to bring it back to the oh. artist's original intention of gold leaf and, mm. and bronze. I get out there. How, how old is the statue? Um, it, was, it was cast in 1881. Okay. So it's very much a neoclassical sculpture. The message there was to portray Kamehameha as a Roman emperor. So he's standing mm -hmm. in the stance of mm -hmm. Augustus Caesar. 
Which is all, then this is part of how you evaluate as well, is... is uh, yes. So I, I take everything into consideration. I get out there, I'm taking paint samples um, uh, so I can do analysis of them, figure out the whole layering of paint and the type of corrosion that's developed. And people started coming up to me and saying, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. This is a very small town. And so I was sent here by the state to do a technical analysis and submit a proposal for restoring the statue. And a few people said, well, whatever you do, don't take the paint off. Uh, mm. I said, why? And they said, well, we paint him so we can relate to him as a human well, we being. Well, we paint him as an active thing. Yes. So Not we, we painted him, but no, we, paint, we him paint him regularly or as needed. It wasn't a ritual practice. Um, in fact, they just used house paint. <laughs> but, <laughs> which, which makes was, it better. Which makes was, it better in my heart. But the whole problem is that house paint was faded and peeling. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sure. It really was in bad condition. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I said, well, do other people feel this way? And, and they said, everyone does. Oh. So I, in my proposal, I wrote that the community should be involved in deciding whether to paint the sculpture or not. This is unheard of in my profession. Mm -hmm. oh. All decisions are made within the professional realm. Because uh, we know what's better for you. I, I got that exactly. Somebody in the state said they don't understand art history. Mm -hmm. I was also told, don't even think about this. You're going to stir up all kinds of native Hawaiian oh, wow. you know, so activism. Of course, of course, of course. Um, they're never going to be able to come to a resolution. You're going to get different opinions here. And, you know, we know that we need to honor the artist's original intention. I couldn't get this out of my mind. I just wow. kept thinking, wow. there's something wrong here. I've, I've never worked on a sculpture where a community had altered its appearance and kind of taken ownership of it. I mean, on Kamehameha Day, which is a state holiday, they have a parade in front of it. They mm -hmm. give it offerings. They, so it's very much the center of That's cultural in life. That's Kahala, right? North Kohala, yeah, yeah, the northwest tip of um, how big Hawaii. is this? How big is this statue? It's over life size, so it's about eight feet. Okay. Uh, to make a very long story short, I finally, well, I closed my practice down and helped find everyone jobs, and went off to London to pursue a PhD at the um, Institute of Archaeology, University College London, because the problem, as I saw it, was a problem in our field. Hmm. that we talk about values, we talk about conservation values and our historical values, but we don't incorporate community values. And I began to imagine a community-based participatory project that would get everybody in the community involved in discussing whether the thing should be painted or gold leaf, hmm. but as a window into questions about how to represent the Hawaiian past. So, you know, I saw this potential project as a way to get people talking about who was Kamehameha, why is he standing here, what, what, is, what is his current meaning to community. Um, and I was in the end able to do it. We spent two years, we were able to get a lot of funding, worked with a lot of artists in the community. I performed a lot of interviews, kind of an ethnography to map cultural meaning, not only has it changed over time, but also all the different kinds of people in Hawaii. And as we know, it's very sure. multicultural. So there's Native Hawaiians, there's Caucasian immigrants, but then there's also all the plantation workers and, and their descendants, and many of them are intermarried. One of the things I found is that, that the decision whether to paint or gold leaf was not, couldn't be mapped 
culturally. So it wasn't like the native Hawaiians were saying one thing and mm. the Caucasians mm. were saying a different thing. But it did enliven a, a really active community ba- debate. In the end, they decided, because we put the decision into their hands. You right? know, the people who had to live with it every day and well, right. who, exactly. who had currently been maintaining a culture around it. They decided to paint it. They had a vote. And um, so we did, in the end, strip the paint off, dealt with the corrosion, uh, dealt with the damage because it had actually been in a shipwreck earlier in its life. Of That's course. another story. Of course. <laughs> and, um, and repainted it. And then I set up a, a maintenance program where locals now maintain it. Um, but I've gotten some kickback from some of my colleagues on this, mm. saying, you know, one of, one of my colleagues, uh, when I launched this project, said, Glenn, don't go native. Oh, oh that's too bad. Yeah, I mean, from my <sighs> perspective then, and, and I th- the field has changed a lot. This was in the early this? late 90s, early 2000s. So before civilization, really. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Way back in the 20th the, century. The last millennia. Yeah. <laughs> before we had yeah. good understanding of cultural relationships, yeah. I, I remember that little town vividly because I had earlier in the day been in Hilo in a farmer's market, and I'm a chef, and so I loaded up. And the problem with traveling as a chef and you go to farmer's markets, okay, now what do I do with all this food that I could not buy? Mm. Like, what do I do? And we got to Kohala, and there's a, a there's an organic restaurant there. And I said, I know this is going to sound odd, but could you make me dinner out of this? And gave them the food, and the chef was, oh, well, of course I would. I mean, you would never think of this uh, now. But I, that when and then when I was doing the research for this, conversation, I thought, oh, fantastic. That was the town. I just loved that. And my wife went to UH, um, spent in eight Hilo years or uh, no, in, uh, in Manola. Okay. Uh, Manoa. Manoa. Sorry. Sorry. Yes. Kind of, the Hawaiians are yelling the at me Oahu right now. Island. Um, and we were just in uh, Maui and there was a, a replica statue of the king. And it was very important for her to get her picture taken in front of that. Hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't, and it, it's only now just coming back to me. Oh, yeah, right. We've, I've seen that. And, but it's, in, it's not painted. It's a bronzed version of it. That was an inflection point, I think, I got from you in your career, right? And you, you said, oh, and then you went to London. Then I went to London. Um, after London, I moved to New York because, in part because I realized that I had grown beyond what I could do in Santa Barbara. Mm. That may mm. shift in the future, but for now, um, I realized that what I, the, the kind of work I wanted to do needed to be done in a big city. I mean, I could go off and do rural projects, but um, there were more opportunities for me. And in fact, New York University approached me about teaching on a part-time basis um, after I finished the PhD in 2004. But, and what I anticipated was that I would be working with um, public art programs and working with kids on... Back to this community thing. Yeah, participatory art, getting people engaged in the, these historic objects that surround them, but using that as, a again, a window into um, you know, cultural, historical issues. Do you feel you thrived there when you were, when you were working with, with diverse groups of people that were, that were 
that were community and non-art, like they didn't have an art background? Was that a good environment for you? I loved it. Yeah. I mm. loved working with, with communities. Uh, and part of the reason I wanted to do the PhD was because I realized that people in other professions, including artists who do um, socially engaged work, um, anthropologists who perform ethnographies, you know, they do deep interviews, and sociologists who do participant observation. I wanted to combine all of that for the, the research that I did. Uh, unexpectedly, after I got to New York, I was approached by MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, to fulfill a two-year uh, project that they had that was funded to put together a conservation program for all their video and electronic art. Mm, tricky. <laughs> I, I remember at the time, uh, the head conservator took me out to lunch and he explained all this. I said, well, why are you talking to me? I know nothing about video and electronic art. And he said, name one conservator who does. Uh. And in fact, back then, there were no museum, what we now call time-based media conservators mm. in the United States. Really? And he This asked, is mid... 2000s? Yes, 2005. Uh, so I, of course, accepted it, it's this. It's still probably a microfield. It it's, is still. It's growing fast, but it's a, it's a small field. I mean, the time-based arts field alone is a small field, let alone like the people who are tasked with, with maintaining it. So you call it time, what's the actual? Time-based media. Got it. Meaning media that has duration as part of its, you know. It has the fourth dimension. Yes, that's right. It takes time. It's so my film. background was... 3D animation, and so you've been around Santa Barbara for a long time, so you remember Wavefront Technologies. Mm -hmm. So that was, I was the founder of Wavefront. Okay. So okay. this, when I read that about you, I was like, oh, I've, I just donated 2,000 artifacts to the University of Minnesota, to their archives, to be able to, they want to have a snapshot of the early days of computer animation, and the biggest challenge was, you know, 120 boxes of videotapes that I had. To, we went out and found the machines that they could use to at least capture the videotape and then put it on some other medium. But I'm going to go, yeah, but that medium's not going to last either. And so I was looking forward to this part of the conversation because that's constantly changing. Exactly. Um, so... So all of a sudden, from working in rural Hawaii, I was faced with the <laughs> world's largest collection of media art. Which um, is where? Museum of Modern Art in okay. New York. Got it. Over 2,000 works. Uh, most of them were video, single channel, you know, analog video tape, but also audio tape. Um, someone else worried about the film, fortunately for me. Mm. Um, and then all of the computer-based work, all the software work. Right, right. And so I had to learn the technology really fast. Wow. And one of the interesting things is I did a lot of reading, talking to people, um, but mainly in library and archives, because as I said, museums at that time just weren't dealing with it. They were putting it in drawers. Uh, and Thinking that it would just, it, they could just turn it off and leave it sit there? And it would be fine? You'd open, you would open up a cabinet where media storage was, and, and I have to say most museums still is, yeah. and there are flash drives, DVDs, Whatever CDs, version. portable hard drives, laptop computers, a pile of VHS tapes, cassette tapes, and, and this is their storage. Well, you can do that for paintings and sculpture and three-dimensional objects, but what I had to learn was that these are 
temporary media carriers. Mm. And the works of art will deteriorate as they sit on these over, over time. So it, it was also sort of a, a rethinking of what conservation meant. Right. Because I was all about the conservation object, the physical, taking care of it, shepherding it, putting it in storage, exhibiting it well. But this, the actual art object was... Um, the content? The content. Mm. It, it needed to be transported to new devices in order to live. So it was a real wow. deep rethinking of what wow. my job was. <laughs> Um, and, of course, all the literature said, well, you copy the tapes. You, you get the same right, kind of right, tapes, right, right, or maybe you migrate them to new, new formats. <laughs> this is when Jackson Pollock's you know, painting is moved and the cigarette butt falls off. And so the handlers go out and try to find the exact same kind of cigarette, smoke it down to where it was, and then smash it back into the painting. <laughs> Which may be appropriate. <laughs> what may be appropriate. For Jackson that's Pollock. For Jackson Pollock. But, wow. oh, well, no, that's... that's <laughs> that was the Hollywood version. That's Art Handler legend. But, <laughs> okay. um, but the idea of, of finding the exact same kind of mag tape that that, that artist used in 1989 to create that work, that that's a very... As an as an artist and as a social practice uh, artist, I th- I always think like, no, that's I don't that tape was just what was available at, at you know at the corner store. I don't that's not attached to it. But then I understand there is a bit of a, a nostalgia to that. Well, Patrick, we could have a real conversation. Yeah, I, so I didn't realize you're a social practice artist. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me let me talk about the technology for a minute, and we can get yeah, yeah, yeah. to some of these other issues because that's that is now what gets me going. Yeah. But it's all it always starts with the technology for me and the object and the and the materiality. So all the literature said copy your tapes and keep copying them every <laughs> ten years. But this was in about two thousand seven. Yeah. We have over two thousand tapes, so this is a huge amount of financial investment for the institution if you're going to just buy all these tapes. But also, you couldn't buy the tapes. So the the world was changing around me as I was trying to develop a conservation program for the media collections at MoMA. And and by the way, they created a position and they hired me full-time in 2007. Then I became Uh, the country's first time-based media conservator. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Thank you you for your work. (laughs) So... I then began to look at um, digital repositories uh, as a possible solution here. And what this meant was digitizing all of the analog works or migrating works that were already digital onto servers. And so art storage would then not be in locked up basement you know, repositories, but actually would be on servers. In the cloud. Which, on the cloud, not yet. That that was a few years later, but um, servers and then backed up on magnetic tape and then stored on redundant servers somewhere else. This was a leap of faith because uh, I didn't tr- totally trust digital storage. Mm. And this mm. is millions of dollars of, of art here, um, irreplaceable art. That is deteriorating as you as you think about the plan. It's it's you're losing resolution. You're losing uh, information. Fortunately, well, first of all, I wasn't alone. I consulted with a lot of people on this um, in in libraries and archives and and elsewhere and and in museums as well. Uh, We made the decision to digitize the collection. So we we did this. We set up digital trusted digital repository. 
And um, the world is now going that way. So I, I'm, I was glad that Good I made that. the decision yeah. and didn't regret it a, a few years later. But so, you know, that was much of what I did. Um, but the other part, which is where Patrick comes in <laughs> as an artist, is that I realized once again that we had to be concerned with what the artist wanted, what the artist right. um, would want the public to experience. And, you know, some of these works are shown on old-fashioned television sets, monitors, the cathode ray tube, you know, the kind of rounded. Um, Intentionally. Tube. Very important to the, the, the timing of when that happened. Yes. Yeah, so we yeah. had to, well, for one thing, we had to go back to all of the artists um, and ask them if they were okay with us digitizing their work mm. and oh. getting legal agreements. Because you didn't initially have that. Yeah, of obviously. course not. Yeah. Um, and not only that, but we had to, f to ask them, well, okay, now that it's going to be digital, we could loan it to the Tate in London, we could loan oh. it to the Pompidou in Paris, and we could show it at MoMA all the same time. Mm. Can it be shown in multiple places at the same time? Can we show it on a flat screen? Can we project it on a wall? Can we, um, you know, what, what are the limits now? Which seem sudden, like minor questions, but in fact are everything. It has to do with the identity of the work. Yeah, you know, so right. the, the fundamental question was, what is this work? And now that we're radically altering it, how do you want the public to see this thing? Um, and often the artist never thought about this. Right, I'm, I'm just, yeah, exactly. So we were getting into collaboration, co-production. Which you probably enjoyed. I love, <laughs> and after, and so, you know, I hadn't thought that all the work I did in Hawaii was going to prepare me for working with uh, artists, yeah. but in fact it did. So all of those interviews, so I launched an artist interview program at MoMA, um, began to, well, we, we set up questionnaires, um, building documentation. And this documentation was institutional knowledge for what the work has been in the past and can be in the future. So I began to ask artists, well, what kind of interpretive authority are you transferring to the museum? Mm. Do you want it to always be shown the same way? And if that's the case, how should it be shown? If you want it on an old-fashioned television set, then we better go back buy 25 of those sets while we still can. And so we did a lot of that. Or if, you know, if it can be shown you know, on a flat screen, can it be hanging from the ceiling? Can we show it in a round room? Can we show it outside? And so it, often the artist was right there with us saying, well, I don't know, I don't know. Can we show it on VR goggles? Can we use, uh, can we show it on smartphones when people come to that certain section of the museum? On and on. Really? And, and we can't predict the kinds of questions that future staff are going to ask. So that's what I would always end with in my artist interviews okay, we've talked about the technology, the history, your thoughts about what kind of an environment it'd be shown in, light levels, audio levels, and so on. But, you know, I bet future people are going to come back to this interview and say, why didn't they ask this? Right. So oh. let's just now talk in gray terms. What do you think the most important element of the work is? How do you want people to react to it? Do you want them to be oh. angry? Do you want them to be politically Confronted agitated. Or, or. Yes, and, and so 
I have a feeling the answers to those questions might be more important, more important in, for people in the future because we don't know what the questions are going to be. If well, just going back, and I, I love to watch old interviews of Deschamps or or anybody anybody who was being interviewed. I love watching um, artists being interviewed by people who don't understand their art. That's my favorite thing, and my current favorite <laughs> is is uh, Rauschenberg being interviewed by Charlie Rose uh, in like '96. And it's, he just, he, he opens the interview with, uh, well, Bob, when I was backstage, I saw a giant box full of cables and lights. And when I see that, I just see a box of cables and lights, but you, you look at it and you see art, don't you? And Bob Rosenberg looks at it and like, he doesn't say it, but it's it, the look on his face is you've just diminished my art to pointing at boxes full of garbage and calling it art. You just did that in front of this whole audience. And it's just, and you just watch Rauschenberg's face just kind of drop in this like, oh great, this is where we're headed. So I love the idea of setting up that, that, that future proofing of, of the mm. work because mm. I really do imagine that in the future when, when, that, when the, the version of you 50 years from now is going back and looking at the conservation and trying to figure out what was the intention of the artist, they're gonna be very thankful. Yes, and, and fortunately the field has changed really fast. I mean, I was the first and only time-based media conservator at a museum in, in the United States for about a minute. And then <laughs> the Guggenheim hired somebody, yeah, and then good. the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington hired somebody, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art has hired somebody, and now there's an electronic media group within our professional organization. It's only a matter of time before there's a, a doctorate in this now. Well, there are in Europe, there not in the oh. U.S. In fact, where I'm going in three days is to London, to the Tate uh, Museum where there's a, um, a meeting of 15 PhD students who mm. are getting their PhDs in the conservation of contemporary art. The European Graduate School or where are they? Are no, they? it's funded by the Marie Curie Foundation, mm -hmm. which is a European Union uh, funding source. And they've funded PhD research in 15 universities around uh, Europe. Yeah. And these students, three-year project, they meet every summer and winter, which I'm going to the winter workshop mm. um, starting on Monday at the Tate. Mm. Um, what a great environment. It's really good because it's creating a, a new generation of, of intellectuals, academics, that can address these larger problems that, that we're talking about here, problems of authenticity, authorship. Like when I get in and change a work of art on my own because I think that's mm. what the artist wanted to do, I would never say that I'm an artist or a co-author, but these questions of you know who makes decisions really need to be sorted out. But but speaking as an artist, I would think I would hope that my I have left that door open for future collaborators that that aren't even born yet. I would I would hope that my ideas would be ideas that 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 that, that draw in other authors and other people to to play along uh, with whatever is being created. I I. I Otherwise, it's just ego, I think. Well, w one of the most helpful concepts to me is variability. Um, when there was a, this project at the Guggenheim called the Variable Media Initiative in the early 2000s, and this notion is that some works of art are fixed. Hmm. It's a painting. It's a sculpture. So from a conservation point of view, we just take care of it. We may mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. discussions about cleaning and repairing it, um, but... For a variable work, it's meant to be different every time it's exhibited. Mm -hmm. And so when I talked before about the interpretive authority that, a, that an artist transfers to a museum, what they're saying is, you can change it. 
yeah, I want, it's an installation work and I want plants in the room, but you can decide whether they're going to be palms or ferns or how big they should be and, and where they should be. And so that's where it gets kind of interesting for me is that the artist wants it to be different mm -hmm. every time it's shown or if for performance work. So th this was another game changer. In 2004, MoMA started acquiring performance works, <laughs> which meant it's a younger generation of artists and, and they're selling their performances in addition. So mm -hmm. one museum can buy one, another museum can buy uh, two of five, three of five. Tino Segal does amazing work like this. Well, we acquired a Tino Segal. Yeah. Oh, my God. That, 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 that was off the charts, the, oh, the yeah. uh, interview I had with him. Oh, but <laughs> oh no. <laughs> we could talk for Mark, hours. Mark, I'm sorry. I'm going to just cut your mic right now. <laughs> <laughs> Tino Segal is one of my, one of my current heroes. He's, his work is fantastic. Just well, well, let me tell you about what is now standard practice for documenting performance work. And then I can tell you about Tino Segal if, if, if you're interested. Um, so what we devised was, again, we would interview the artist, but we would also video the artist performing the work. And then we would video the artist training someone else to perform the work. And then we would video someone else performing the work. <gasps> so we're built, and then of course in my interviews I would say, well, what's this performance about? Who, what should be the backgrounds of the people who enact it? Should they be trained dancers? Should they be classical pianists? Should they be people off the streets? What should they wear? Should they interact with the public or not? Do you want signage in the room? What are the light levels, audio levels? You know, can there be other works of art in the room? Can we do it outside? You know, all my standard questions adapted to performance works. Um, so. You know, and, and in a sense, we were creating training videos, mm -hmm. which I wouldn't, you know, um, necessarily want to call them that. But basically what we were putting together was a documentation package for future museum staff and future performers. Or if you were to sell that, that, that item for whatever reason. Yes, yeah, so the documentation goes along with the right. art. And in fact, the art is the documentation. Ultimately, yeah. This is another line of argument that I'm in some of my writing is that you cannot know some of these works without knowing it through its documentation. So, you know, the public may go into a museum and see a work of art being performed, for instance, but a scholar or a museum professional has access to videos and images and interviews and you know, of, of past performances, so they can have a much richer understanding of what the work has been and can be. And so one of the things I argue is that we need to make this documentation available to the public mm. so that people can see all these videos that are now just kept in museum storage, you know, that people like me are building for future staff. But of course that creates all sorts of confusion with what, what is the piece? Is the piece experiencing it? So, so Tino Segal, one of his more famous pieces, is it Embrace or Kiss? Kiss. You have Kiss. This is the one we acquired, yes. Yeah, Kiss is two people lying on the ground. Mm -hmm. two, well, Kiss is a piece of work that, uh, that Tino Segal created where, where when you approach it there's a lot of stuff happening but but and correct me please here any any part of this my my experience with it is is that it's two people um very in 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 what almost seems like this this uh just gesture of embrace on the ground and uh and that's it and it's for three hours i don't know what the the, ter the term is for each of the performance peep the two people in it it's the way he described it and we did um 
Tino Segal is, is somewhat unique, um, and he's pushing boundaries, so he does this deliberately. Um, he doesn't want anything about his work to be in writing. He doesn't want any images to be taken of it. He wants it to all be about oral transmission. So even when we acquired the work, we sat around in a table with our head curators, me, the conservator, our registrar, our lawyer, him, his gallery representative, and his lawyer, and we talked through the contract. Mm. So the contract was orally negotiated, and it was sealed with a handshake. Oh my and the God. money was sent electronically rather than on check. I love Tina Segal. And then, <laughs> it's just my favorite. When I did no. the interview at the end of this uh, uh, meeting, uh, he and I and our curator and a, a gallery representative went into a room, and I pulled out my recorder, and I said, do you mind if I record this? And he said, well, actually, I do. <laughs> I said, I thought so. Yeah. So, And he said, take out the batteries. But he said, no, 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 I'm joking. Um, so I didn't record it. It's all, you know, uh, oral transmission, and it's all about memory, <sighs> memory of the institution, memory of the individuals. But the work itself, which, again, has to be trained, you know, orally. Um, there's nothing in writing about it and no videos that people can, can watch. Uh, so we were challenged as an institution. There is a call, and people apply. They have to they have to apply in couples, and then they're they're selected. So a number of couples are selected and trained. The work itself is an eight minute choreographic loop of two people. Yes, starting on the floor, moving in and out, slowly moving in and out of positions that are reminiscent of known works of art where a man and a woman are kissing. So like Rodin's Kiss, the sculpture. And so they, they move in and out of these positions over eight minutes, and it's continuous. Um, they, there's no signage in the room. And we, we said, you know, the Guggenheim wants to borrow the kiss yeah, from us. This was so great. They and loaned it. We loaned it. Um, and we said, but we want people to know that MoMA owns it because so you couldn't have, but you couldn't have a sign the the <sighs> dancers ha they're not dancers they're interpreters according to his language yeah. are able when new people come into the room to say Tino Segal the kiss the date just orally right and we said could they add on loan from the Museum <laughs> of Modern Art did, did he <laughs> and agree he said yes oh huh? so fantastic but, that but was during progress, too. They did progress at the same time where this was the first time in years that they cleared out all of the, the Guggenheim. Every, not everything was removed from the Guggenheim. And there was a separate performance that ran up the ramps mm -hmm. that is another beautiful one. No, he's, he, he does really wonderful work. I agree with you. And we took this as a challenge. So mm -hmm. our documentation, instead of being videos and photographs, was all in our heads. Oh, my God. The idea was, I can't say that when we ever did this, but the idea was that we would practice it once a year, where we would bring in Reset maybe two, yeah. two people who had performed it, and staff would get around, Conservation. and we would reenact it in order to reinstall, reinstall it in our memories. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. Glenn, what an amazing <laughs> job you have. I mean, it's not a job. It's, it's just this lifestyle that you have of thinking about art and thinking about these much, much bigger ideas that the uh, civilians like myself, because I, I clearly oh, you I were having Oh, I could go for another eight hours. Yeah, yeah I know yeah, you could, clearly. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you. This has been really fun. We got into some great issues here. So <laughs> thank you for getting me going. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, one of the things we do at the end of the show, is, as our listener knows, is we like to um, give a title to this conversation, this performance we've just had. Mm -hmm. And we give you the first right to be able to do your dibs on uh, giving it a title. Because as we have now a huge back catalog, someone comes in and listens to one and then they look at the list and it's by the title that they're intrigued to go in and, and listen to something else. What would we call this conversation? It could be called the conservation of contemporary art. And if it was shorter. Conserving contemporary art. <laughs> okay, I like that. I think this is going to be one of the sleeper episodes. We so many of our, our podcasts on this on this uh, on 805 conversations is business oriented or startup oriented, and I I think that uh, as an educator I always say like like you know you need to you need to reach out like if you want to write a love story like get your heart ripped out don't listen to a bunch of love stories. So if you want to make a successful business, don't don't necessarily always just listen to business podcasts. Go out and listen to something that's just left Correct. just just completely off off your topic. And uh, and I think that this is uh, uh, one of those podcasts where I'm like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna lure in some business people to this one. This is gonna be good. What to, I mean to that point, that's exactly right because it's um, the business of art is people that have money are what keep this thing going, and they made that money either well they earned it the old fashioned way they inherited it, or <laughs> you know they went out and and they have done a business and the ones that are and we think of the young ones now the Facebook millionaires and the Amazon millionaires and those folks that have uh, a leaning towards supporting the arts actually if you're one of those people and you're listening I hope you're giving some of those proceeds back into the arts because they really need it bad and with that um, yeah. that's a wrap I um, thank you so much again um, and you were pretty easy to find on the internet, so I'm going to put a link on there. But do you keep a private site and a blog and writing and things like that? Uh, GlennWharton.net. That's my website. Perfect. Then uh, we will uh, encourage people to go there. And I also want to thank California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and & Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Pullstring Press. If you're interested in partnering with our podcast, send us a note to partner at 805connect.com. Hey, Patrick, yes. so someone, uh, one of these business people, one yeah. of our listeners, we've, right. I mean, we've got thousands. Um, sure. They have been listening. How could they help us right now? Well, right now, uh, the best thing to do is to go back into that podcast application that you are listening to currently and uh, rate, write, review. Give us some, some stars uh, if you think that we've done a good job at providing you with culturally relevant information for your day. Uh, and the other thing is, is uh, grab one of your friends that has yet to hear about us, and that is probably mm. most of your friends, and get them listening to this podcast as well. Uh, we believe that these are valuable conversations that need to have an audience. So uh, help us expand that audience. I would love to hear from you if you've got questions or an idea for a guest. I, Patrick, I'm yeah. getting more emails. Yeah, great. People are actually doing that. They're sending us, hey, you should talk to this person, or I see them around town and they give me a list, and I love it. I can't wait for the day when you, you act like that's a burden instead of a surprise to you. <laughs> I just, if you could just stop emailing Mark, please. He's inundated. It's too much. 
So if you do have uh, an idea, drop me a line, mark at 805connect.com. Thank you so much. And Patrick, until oh. next time. <laughs> we'll just start the, start the music right there, Mark, for you. Thank you so much. Yeah. This is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations. 